The Law of Success, Lesson 1, The Master Mind. You can do it if you believe you can. Quote. This is a course of the fundamentals of success. Success is very largely a matter of adjusting oneself to the ever-varying and changing environments of life in a spirit of harmony and poise. Harmony is based up upon understanding of the forces constituting one's environment. Therefore, this course is in reality a blueprint that may be followed straight to success because it helps the student to interpret, understand, and make the most of these environmental forces of life. Before you begin reading the laws of success lessons, you should know something of the history of this course. You should know exactly what this course promises to those who follow it until they have assimilated the laws and principles upon which it is based. You should know its limitations as well as its possibilities as an aid in your fight for a place in this world. From the viewpoint of entertainment, the Law of Success course would be a poor second for most of any of the monthly periodicals in the snappy story variety which may be found upon the newsstands of today note 1928 and note life insurance is supposed to be the hardest thing on earth to sell this ought not be true with the established necessity such as life insurance but it is despite this fact a small group of men working for the prudential life insurance company whose sales are mostly small policies formed a little friendly group of for the purpose of experimenting with the law of the mastermind, with the result that every man in the group wrote more insurance during the first three months of the experiment than he had ever written in an entire year before. What may be accomplished through the aid of this principle by any small group of intelligent life insurance salesmen who learned how to apply the law of mastermind will stagger the imagination of the most highly optimistic and imaginative person. The same may be said of other groups of salespeople who are engaged in selling merchandise and other more tangible forms of service than life insurance. Bear in mind, as you read this introduction to the Law of Success course, and it is not unreasonable to expect that this introduction alone may give you sufficient understanding of the law to change the entire course of your life. It is the personality's back of a, of a business which determine the measure of success the business will enjoy. Modify those personalities so that are more pleasing and more attractive to the patrons of the business, and the business will thrive. In any of the great cities of the United States, one may purchase merchandise of similar nature and price in scores of stores. Yet you will find that there is always one outstanding store which does more business than any of the others. The reason for this is that back of the store is a man or men who has attended to the personalities of those who come in contact with the public. People buy personalities as much as they merchandise, and it is a question if they are not influenced more by the personalities which they come in contact than they are by the merchandise. Life insurance has been reduced to such a scientific basis that the cost of insurance does not vary to any great extent, regardless of the company from which one purchased it. Yet, out of the hundreds of life insurance companies doing business, less than a dozen companies do the bulk of the business of the United States. Why? Personalities. 99 people out of every 100 who purchase life insurance policies do not know what is in their policies and, what seems more startling, do not seem to care. What they really purchase is the pleasing personality of some man or woman who knows the value of the cultivating a, such a personality. 
Your business in life, or at least the most important part of it, is to achieve success. Success, with the meaning of that term as covered by the course of the 15 Laws of Success, is the attainment of your definite chief aim without violating the rights of other people. Regardless of what your major aim in life may be, you will attain it with much less difficulty after you learn how to cultivate a pleasing personality, and after you have learned the delicate art of allying yourself with others in a given undertaking without friction or envy. One of the greatest problems of life, if not in fact the greatest, is that the learning of the art of harmonious negotiation with others. This course has created for the purpose of teaching people how to negotiate their way through life with harmony and poise, free from the destructive effects of disagreement and friction which brings millions of people to misery, want, and failure every year. With this statement of purpose of the course, you should be able to approach the lessons with the feeling that a complete transformation is about to take place in your personality. You cannot, outstand, you cannot enjoy outstanding success in life without power, and you can never enjoy power without sufficient personality to influence other people to cooperate with you in a spirit of harmony. This course shows you step-by-step step how to develop such a personality. Lesson by lesson, the following is a statement that will lesson by lesson the following is a statement that will that which you may expect to receive from the 15 laws of success one a definite chief aim will teach you how to save the wasted effort which the majority of people expand, expend in trying to find their life work this lesson will show you how to do away forever the aimlessness and fix your heart and hand upon some definite well-conceived purpose as a life work. Two, self-confidence. will help you master the six basic fears which every person is cursed. The fear of poverty, the fear of ill health, the fear of old age, the fear of criticism, the fear of loss of love of someone, and the fear of death. It will teach you the difference between egotism and real self-confidence, which is the based upon definite usable knowledge. Three, habit of saving will teach you how to distribute your income systematically so that a definite percentage of it will steadily accumulate, thus forming one of the greatest known sources of personal power. No one may succeed in life without saving money. There is no exception to this rule, and no one may escape it. 4. Initiative and Leadership will show you how to become a leader instead of a follower in your chosen field of endeavor. It will develop in you the instinct for leadership, which will cause you gradually to gravitate to the top of all undertakings which you participate. 5. Imagination will stimulate your mind so that you will conceive new ideas and develop new plans which will help you in attaining the object of your definite chief aim. This lesson will teach you how to build new houses out of old stones, so to speak. It will show you how to create new ideas out of old well-known concepts, and how to put old ideas into new uses. This one lesson alone is equivalent to a very practical course in salesmanship. It is sure to prove a veritable goldmine of knowledge to the person who is in, in, earnest, in earnest. 6. Enthusiasm will enable you to saturate all with whom you come in contact with earnest in 6. Enthusiasm will enable you to saturate all with whom you come in contact with interest in you and in your ideas. Enthusiasm is the foundation of a pleasing personality. 
and you must have it, such a personality in order to influence others to cooperate with you. 7. Self-control is the balance wheel with which you control your enthusiasm and direct it where you wish it to carry you. This lesson will teach you, in the most practical manner, to become the master of your fate, the captain of your soul. 8. The habit of doing more than paid for is one of the most important lessons of the Law of Success course. It will teach you how to take advantage of the law of increasing returns, which will eventually ensure you have you a return in money far out of the proportion to the service you render. No one may become a real leader in any walk of life without practicing the habit of doing more work and better work than for which he is paid. The course has been created for the serious-minded person who devotes at least a portion of his or her time to the business of succeeding in life. The author of the Law of Success course has not intended to compete with others who write purely for purpose of entertaining. The author's aim in preparing this course has been a twofold nature, namely, first to help the earnest student find out what are his or her weaknesses, and secondly, to help create a definite plan for bridging those weaknesses. The most successful men and women on earth have had to correct certain weak spots in their personalities before they began to succeed. The most outstanding of these weaknesses which stand between men and women and success are intolerance, cupidity, greed, jealousy, suspicion, revenge, egotism, conceit, the tendency to reap where they have not sown, and the habit of spending more than they earn. All the common enemies of mankind, and many more were not mentioned here, are covered by the Law of Success course in such a manner that any person of reasonable intelligence may master them without, with little effort or inconvenience. You should know, at the very outset, the Law of Success course has long since passed through the experimental state, that it already has to its credit a record of achievement that is worthy of serious thought and analysis. You should know also that the Law of Success course has been examined and endorsed by some of the most practical minds of the generation. The Law of Success course was first used as a lecture and was delivered by its author in practically every city and in manner of the small localities throughout the United States over a period of more than seven years. Perhaps you were one of the many hundreds of thousands of people who heard this lecture. During the lectures, the author had assistants located in the audience for the purpose of interpreting the reaction of those who heard the lecture. And in this manner, he learned exactly what effect it had upon people. As a result of the study and analysis, many changes were made. The first big victory was gained for the Law of Success philosophy when it was used by the author as the basis of a course with which 3,000 men and women were trained as a sales army. The majority of these people were without previous experience of any sorts in the field of selling. Through this training, they were enabled to earn more than $1 million for themselves and pay the author $30,000 for his services, covering a period of approximately six months. The individuals and small groups of salespeople who have found success through the aid of this course are too numerous to be mentioned in this introduction, but the number is large and the benefit they derived from this course were definite. The Law of Success philosophy was brought to the attention of the late Don R. Millett, former publisher of the Canton, Ohio Daily News, who formed a partnership with the author of the course and was preparing to resign as publisher of the Canton Daily News and take up the business management of the author's affairs when he was assassinated on July 16, 1926. Prior to his death, Mr. Millett had made arrangements with Judge Albert H. Gary, who was then chairman of the board of the United States Corporation 
to present the Law of Success course to every employee of the Steel Corporation at a total cost of something like $150,000. This plan was halted because Judge Gary's death, but it proves that the author of the Law of Success has produced an educational plan of enduring nature. Judge Gary was eminently prepared to judge the value of such a course, and the fact that he analyzed the Law of Success philosophy and was preparing to invest a huge sum of $150,000 in it is proof of the soundness of all that is said on behalf of this course. You will observe that in this general introduction to the course, a few technical terms which may not be plain to you. Do not allow this to bother you. Make no attempt at first reading to understand these terms. They will be plain to you after you read the remainder of the course. This entire introduction is intended only as background for the other 15 lessons of the course, and you should read it as such. You will not be examined on the introduction, but you should read it many times, as you will get from it each reading a thought or an idea which you did not get from previous readings. In the introduction, you will find a description of the newly discovered law of psychology, which is the very foundation stone of all understanding personal achievements. This law has been referred to by the author as Master Mind meaning a mind that is developed through the harmonious cooperation of two or more people who ally themselves for the purpose of accomplishing any given task. You are engaged in the business of selling. You may profitably experiment with the law, with this law of the mastermind in your daily work. It has been found that a group of six or seven salespeople may use the law so effectively that their sales may be increased to unbelievable proportions. 9. Pleasing Personality is the fulcrum on which you must place the crowbar of your efforts, and when so placed, with intelligence, it will enable you to remove mountains of obstacles. This one lesson alone has made scores of master salesmen. It has developed leaders overnight. It will teach you how to transform your personality so that you may adapt yourself to any environment or to any other personality in such a manner that you may easily dominate. 10. Accurate thinking. It is one of the important foundation stones of all enduring success. This lesson teaches you how to separate facts from mere fiction information. It teaches you how to organize known facts into two classes, the important and the unimportant. It teaches you how to determine what is an important fact it teaches you how to build definite working plans in the pursuit of any calling out of facts. 11. Concentration. It teaches you how to focus your attention upon one subject at a time until you have worked out practical plans for mastering that subject. It will teach you how to ally, ally yourself with others in such a manner that you will, may have the use of their entire knowledge to back you up in your own plans and purposes. It will give you a practical working knowledge of the forces around you and will show you how to harness and use these forces in furthering your own interest. 12. Cooperation will teach you the value of teamwork in all you do. In this lesson, you will be taught how to apply the law of the mastermind described in this introduction and in the lesson two of this course. This lesson will show you how to coordinate your own efforts with those of others in such a manner that friction, jealousy, strife, envy, cupidity will be eliminated. 
you will learn how to make use of all that other people have learned about the work in which you are engaged. 13. Profiting by failure will teach you how to make stepping stones out of all the, your past and future mistakes and failures. It will teach you the difference between failure and temporary defeat. A difference which is very great and very important. It will teach you how to profit by your own failures and by the failures of other people. 14. Tolerance will teach you how to avoid the disastrous effects of racial and religious prejudices, which mean defeat for millions of people who permit themselves to become entangled in foolish argument over these subjects, thereby poisoning their own minds and closing the door to reason and, and investigation. This lesson is the twin sister of the one on accurate thought for the reason that no one may become an accurate thinker without practicing tolerance. Intolerance closes the book of knowledge and writes on the cover, Fine. I have learned it all. End quote. Intolerance may make enemies of those who should be friends. It destroys opportunity and fills the mind with doubt, mistrust, and prejudice. 15. Practicing the Golden Rule will teach you how to make use of this great universal law of human conduct in such a manner that you may easily get harmonious cooperation from any individual or group of individuals. Lack of understanding of the law upon which the Golden Rule philosophy is based on is one of the major causes of failure of millions of people who remain in misery, poverty, and want in all their lives. This lesson has nothing whatsoever to do with religion in any form, nor with sectarianism, nor have any of the other lessons of this course on the law of success. When you have mastered these 15 laws and made them your own, you may do within a period of from 15 to 30 weeks, you will be ready to develop sufficient personal power to ensure the attainment of your definite chief aim. The purpose of these 15 laws is to develop or help you organize all the knowledge you have, all you acquire in the future, so you may turn the knowledge into power. You should read the Law of Success course with a notebook by your side. You will be, you will, for you will observe that ideas will begin to flash into your mind as you read. As to ways and means of using these laws and advancing your own interest. You should also begin teaching these laws to those in whom you are most interested, as it is a well-known fact that the more one tries to teach a subject, the more he learns about that subject. A man who has a family of young boys and girls may so indelibly fix these 15 laws of success in their minds that this teaching will change the, the entire course of their lives. The man with the family should interest his wife in, a, in studying this course with him for reasons which will be plain before you complete reading this introduction. Power 
is one of the three basic objects of human endeavor. Power is of two classes, that which is developed through coordination of natural physical laws and that which is developed by organizing and classifying knowledge. Power, growing out of organized knowledge, is the most, is the, hmm. power, growing out of organized knowledge, is the more important because it places in man's possession a tool with which he may transform, redirect, and to some extent harness and use the other form of power. The object of this reading course is to mark the route by which the student may safely travel in gathering such facts as he may wish to weave into his fabric of knowledge. There are two major methods of gathering knowledge, namely studying, classifying, and assimilating facts which have been organized by other people into one's own process of gathering, organizing, and classifying facts, generally called personal experience. This lesson deals mainly with the ways and means of studying the facts and data gathered and classified by other people. The state of advancement known as civilization is but the measure of knowledge which the race has accumulated. This knowledge is of two classes, mental and physical. Among the useful knowledge organized by man, he has discovered and cataloged the 80-odd physical elements of which all material forms in the universe consist. By study and analysis and accurate measurements, man has discovered the bigness of the material side of the universe as represented by the planets, suns, and stars, some of which are known to be over 10 million times as large as the little earth on which he lives. On the other hand, man has discovered that the littleness of physical forms which constitute the universe by reducing the adiod physical elements to molecules, atoms, and finally to the smallest particle, the electron. The electron cannot be seen. It is but a center of force consisting of a positive or negative. The electron is the beginning of everything in the physical nature. Molecules, atoms, and electrons. To understand both the detail and the perspective of the process to which knowledge is gathered, organized, and classified, it seems essential for the student to begin with the smallest and simplest particles of physical matter because these are the ABCs with which nature has constructed the entire framework of the physical portion of the universe. The molecule consists of atoms which are said to be little invisible particles of matter revolving continuously with the speed of lightning on exactly the same principle that the earth revolves around the sun. These little particles of matter known as atoms which revolve in one continuous circuit in the molecule are said to be made up of electrons, the smallest particle of physical matter. As already stated, the electron is nothing but two forms of force. The electron is uniform but one class, but of one class, size and nature. Thus, in a grain of sand or a drop of water, the entire principle upon which the whole universe operates is duplicated. How marvelous, how stupendous. You may gather some slight idea of the magnitude of it all the next time you eat a meal by remembering that every article of food you eat, the plate on which you eat it, 
The tableware and the table itself are, in final analysis, but a collection of electrons. In the world of physical matter, whether one is looking at the largest star that floats through the heavens or the smallest grain of sand to be found on the earth, the object under observation is but an organized collection of molecules, atoms, and electrons revolving around one another in inconceivable speed. Every particle of physical matter is in a continuous state of highly agitated motion. Nothing is ever still, although, although nearly all phys physical matter may appear to be physical I to be motionless. There is no solid physical matter. The hardest piece of steel is but an organized mass of revolving molecules, atoms, and electrons. Moreover, the electrons in a piece of steel are of the same nature and move at the same rate of speed as the electrons in gold, silver, brass appear. The 80-odd forms of physical matter appear to be different from one another, and they are different. Because they are made up of different combinations of atoms. Although the electrons and these atoms are always the same, except that one that some electrons are positive and some are negative, meaning that some carry a positive charge of electrification while others carry a negative charge. Through the science of chemistry, matter may be broken up into atoms which are, within themselves, unchangeable. The adiot elements of, are created through and by reason of combining and changing of the positions of the atoms to illustrate the modus operandi of chemistry through which this change of atomic position is wrought in terms of modern science. Add four electrons, two positive, two negative, to the hydrogen atom, and you have the element lithium. Knockout of the lithium atom, composed of three positive and three negative electrons, one positive and one negative electron, and you have one atom of helium composed of two positive and two negative electrons. Thus, it may be seen that the adiod physical elements of the universe differ from one another only in the number of electrons composing their atoms, and the number of arrangement of those atoms in the molecules of each element. As, as an illustration, an atom of mercury contains 80 positive charges, electrons, in its nucleus, and 80 negative outlying charges, electrons. If the chemist were to expel two of its positive electrons, it would instantly become a metal known as platinum. If the chemist could then go a step further and take from it a negative electron, the mercury atom would then have lost two positive electrons and one negative. That is, one positive charge on the whole. Hence, he would retain 79 positive charges in the nucleus and 79 outlying negative electrons, thereby becoming gold. The formula to which this electronic change might be produced has been the object of diligent search by all by the alchemists all down the ages and by the modern chemists of today. It is a known it is a fact known to every chemistry that literally tens of thousands of synthetic substances may be composed out of only four kinds of atoms, viz. 
hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, and carbon. Quote, differences in the number of electrons and atoms confer upon them qualitative differences through all atoms of any one element are chemically alike. Differences in the number of spatial arrangement of these atoms constitute both physical and chemical differences in substance, i.e. in compounds. Quite different substances, substances are produced by combinations of precisely the same kinds of atoms, but in different proportions. Take from a molecule a certain substance, one single atom, and they may be changed from a compound necessary to life and growth into a deadly poison. Phosphorus is an element, thus contains but one kind of atoms, but some phosphorus is yellow and some is red, varying with the spatial distribution of the atoms and the molecules composing the phosphorus. It may be stated as a little truth that the atom is the universe, universal particle with which nature builds all material forms, from a grain of sand to the largest star that floats through the space. The atom is nature's building block, out of which she erects an oak tree or a pine tree, a rock sandstone or granite, a mouse or an elephant. Some of the ablest thinkers have reasoned that the earth on which we live and every material particle on the earth began with two atoms, which attached themselves to each other and through hundreds of millions of years of flight through space, kept contacting and accumulating other atoms until, step by step, the Earth was formed. This, they point out, would account for the various and different strata of the Earth's substances, such as coal beds, iron ore deposits, gold and silver deposits, the copper deposits, etc. They reasoned that, as the Earth whirled through space, it contacted groups of various kinds of nebulae, or atoms, which promptly appropriated through the law of magnetic attraction. There is much to be seen in the Earth's surface composition to support this theory, although there may be no positive evidence to its soundness. These facts concerning the smallest analyzed, uh, analyzable particle of matter have been briefly referred to as a starting point from which we shall undertake to ascertain how to develop and apply the law of power. It has been noticed that all matter is in a constant state of vibration or motion, that the molecule is made up of rapidly moving particles called atoms, which, in turn, are made up of rapidly moving particles called electrons. The vibrating fluid of matter, in every particle of matter, there is an invisible fluid, or force, which causes atoms to circle around one another at an inconceivable rate of speed. This fluid is a form of energy which has never been analyzed. Thus far, it has baffled the entire scientific world. By many, mean, by many scientists, it is believed to be the same energy as that which we call electricity. Others prefer to call it vibration. It is believed by some investigators that the rate of speed with which this force moves determines to a large extent, the nature of the outward visible appearance of the physical objects of the universe. One rate of vibration of this fluid energy causes what is known as sound. The human ear can detect only sound which is produced from 32,000 to 38,000 vibrations per second. As the rate of vibration per second increases, 
above, which we call sound, they begin to manifest themselves in the form of heat. Heat begins with about a million five hundred vibrations per second. Still higher of the scale, vibrations begin to register in the form of light. Three thousand three million vibrations per second create violet light. Above this number of vibration sheds ultraviolet rays, which are invisible to the naked eye and other invisible radiations. And still, higher up the scale, just how high no one at present time seems to know vibrations create the power with which man thinks. It is the belief of the author that the fluid portion of all vibration out of which grow all known forms of energy is universal in nature. That the fluid portion of sound is the same as the fluid portion of light. The difference in effect in between the sound and light begin only at differences in rate of vibration. Also, that the fluid portion of thought is exactly the same as that in sound, heat, light, accepting the number of vibrations per second. Just as there is but one form of physical matter, of which Earth and all the other planets, suns, and stars are composed, the electron so, is there but one form of fluid energy which causes all matter to remain in a constant state of rapid motion, air and ether. The vast space between the suns, moons, stars, and other planets of the universe is filled with a form of energy known as ether. It is this author's belief that the fluid energy which keeps all particles of matter in motion is the same as the universal fluid known as ether, which fills all the space of the universe within a certain distance of the Earth's surface estimated by some to be about 50 miles, there exists what is air, which is a gaseous substance composed of oxygen and nitrogen. Air is a conductor of sound vibrations, but a non-conductor of light and the higher vibrations, which are carried by the ether. The ether is a conductor of all vibrations from sound to thought. Air is a localized substance which performs, in the main, the service of feeding all animal and plant life oxygen and nitrogen, without which neither could exist. Nitrogen is one of the chief necessities of plant life, and oxygen one of the mainstays of animal life. Near the top of very high mountains, the air becomes very light because it contains but little nitrogen, which is the reason why plant life cannot exist there. On the other hand, the light air found at high altitudes consists largely of oxygen, which is the chief reason why tubicular patients are sent to high altitudes. Even this brief statement concerning molecules, atoms, electrons, air, ether, and the like may be heavy reading to the student, but as will be seen shortly, this introduction plays an essential part as the foundation of this lesson. Do not become discouraged if the description of, the, of this foundation appears to have none of the thrilling effects of modern tale of fiction. You are seriously engaged in finding out what your available powers and how to organize and apply these powers. To complete this discovery successfully, you must combine determination, persistency, and well-defined desire to gather and organize knowledge. The late Dr. Alexander Graham Bell 
inventor of the long-distance telephone, and one of the accepted authorities on the subject of vibration, is here introduced to in support of the author's theories concerning the subject of vibration. Quote, Suppose you have the power to make an iron rod vibrate with any desired frequency in a dark room, at first vibrating slowly. Its movement will be indicated by only one sense, that of touch. As soon as the vibrations increase, a low sound will emanate from it and it will appear in two senses. At about 32,000 vibrations to the second, the sound will be loud and shrill, but at 40,000 vibrations it will be silent and the movements of the rods will not be perceived by touch. Its movements will be perceived by no ordinary human sense. From this point to about 1.5 million vibrations per second, we have no sense that can appreciate any effect of the intervening vibrations. After that stage it re is reached, movement is indicated first by the sense of temperature and then, when the rod becomes red hot, by the sense of sight. At 3 million, it sheds violet light. Above that, it sheds ultraviolet rays and other invisible radiations, some of which can be perceived by instruments and employed by us. Now, it has occurred to me that there must be a great deal to be learned about the effect of those vibrations in the great gap where the ordinary human senses are unable to hear, see, or feel the movement. The power to send wireless messages by either vibration lies in that gap. That gap is so great that it seems there must be much more. You must make machines practically to supply new senses as the wireless instruments do. Can it be said when you think of the great gap that there are not many forms of vibrations that may give us a result as wonderful as this or even more wonderful than wireless waves. It seems to me that in this gap lie the vibrations which we have assumed to be given off by our brains and nerve cells. When we think, but then again, they may be higher up in the scale beyond the vibrations that produce the ultraviolet rays. Authors note, the last sentence suggests the theory held by the author. End quote. Do we need a wire to carry these vibrations? Will they not pass through the ether without wire, just as wireless waves do? How will they be perceived by the recipient? Will he hear a series of signals, or will he find that another man's thoughts have entered into his brain? We may indulge in some speculations based on what we know of the wireless waves, which, as I have said, are all we can recognize a vast series, series of vibrations which theoretically must exist. If the thought waves are similar to the wireless waves, they must pass from brain and flow endlessly around the world and universe. The body and the skull and other solid obstacles would form no obstruction to their passage as they pass through the ether which surrounds the molecules of every substance, no matter how solid and dense. You ask if there would not be constant interference and confusion if other people's thoughts were flowing through our brains and setting up thoughts in them that did not originate with ourselves? How do you know that other men's thoughts are not interfering with yours now? I have noticed a good many phenomena of mind disturbances that I have never been able to explain. For instance, 
there is the inspiration of the discouragement that a speaker feels in addressing an audience. I have experienced this many times in my life and have been able to define exactly the physical causes of it. Many recent scientific discoveries, in my opinion, point to a day, not far distant perhaps, when men will read one, one another's thoughts, when thoughts will be conveyed directly from brain to brain without the intervention of speech, writing, or any present known methods of communication. It is not unreasonable to look forward to a time when we shall see without eyes, hear without ears, and talk without tongues. Briefly, the hypothesis that the mind can communicate directly with mind rests on the theory that thought or vital force is a form of electrical disturbance, that it can be taken up by induction and transmitted to a distance either through a wire or simply through an all-pervading ether, as in the case of wireless telegraph waves. There are many analogies which suggest that thought is the nature of an electrical disturbance, a nerve, which is of the same substance as the brain, is an excellent conductor of electric current. When we first pass an electrical current through the nerves of a dead man, we were shocked and amazed to see him sit up and move. The electrified nerves produce contraction of the muscles very much as in life. The nerves appear to act upon the muscles very much as the electric current acts upon an electromagnet. The current magnetizes a bar of iron placed at right angles to it, and the nerves produce through the intangible current of vital force that flows through them, contraction of the muscular fibers that are arranged at right angles to them. It would be possible to cite many reasons why thought and vital force may be regarded as the same nature as electricity. The electric current is held to be a wave motion of, e of the ether, the hypothetical substance that fills all space and pervade, pervades all substances. We believe that there must be ether because without it, the electric current could not pass through a vacuum or sunlight through space. It is reasonable to believe only a wave motion of a particular character can produce the phenomena of thought and vital force. We may assume that the brain cells act as a battery and that the current produced flows along the nerves. But does it end there? Does it not pass out of the body in waves which flow around the world unperceived by our senses, just as wireless waves pass unperceived before hertz? and others discover their existence? Every mind both a broadcasting and receiving station. The author has proved, times too numerous to enumerate, to his own satisfaction at least, that every brain is both a broadcasting and receiving station for vibrations of thought frequency. If this theory should turn out to be a fact, and methods of reasonable control should be established, imagine the part and would play in the gathering, classifying, and organizing of knowledge, the possibility, that much less the probability, of such a reality staggers the mind of man. Thomas Paine was one of the great minds of the American Revolutionary period. To him, more perhaps than to any other one person, we owe both the beginning and the happy ending of the Revolution. For it was his keen mind 
that both helped in drawing up the Declaration of Independence and in persuading the signers of that document to translate it into terms of reality. In speaking of the source of his great storehouse of knowledge, Payne thus described it, quote, Any person who has made observations on the state of progress of the human mind by observing his own cannot but have observed that there are two distinct classes of which we call thoughts, those that we produce in ourselves by reflection and the act of thinking, and those that vault into the mind of their own accord. I have always made it a rule to treat these voluntary visitors with civility, taking care to examine as well as I, am, I was able if they were worth entertaining, and it is from them I have acquired almost all the knowledge that I have. As to the learning that any person gains from school education, it serves only like a small capital to put him in the way of beginning learning for himself afterwards. Every person of learning is finally his own teacher, the reason for which is that principles cannot be impressed upon the memory. Their place of mental residence is the understanding, and they are never so lasting as when they begin by conception. End quote. In the foregoing words, Payne, the great American patriot and philosopher, described an experience which at one time or another is the experience of every person. Who is there so unfortunate as not to have received positive evidence that thoughts and even complete ideas will pop into the mind from outside sources? What means of conveyance is there for such visitors except the ether? Ether fills the boundless space of the universe. It is the medium of conveyance for all known forms of vibration, which sound light and heat. Why should it not be also the medium of conveyance of vibration of thought? Every mind or brain is directly connected with every brain by means of ether. Every thought released by any brain may be instantly picked up and interpreted by all other brains that are in rapport with the sending brain. The author is as sure of this fact as, it, as he is the chemical formula H2O will produce water. Imagine, if you can, that part of this principle plays in every walk of life. Nor is the probability of the ether being a conveyor of thought from mind to mind and most astounding of its performances. It is the belief of this author that every thought vibration released by any brain is picked up by the ether and kept in motion in, circ in circuitous wavelengths corresponding in length to the intensity of the energy used in their release. That these vibrations remain in motion forever, that they are one of two sources from which thoughts which pop into one's mind emanate. The other source being direct and immediate contact through the ether with the brain releasing the thought vibration. Thus, it will be seen that if the, this theory is a fact, the boundless space of the whole universe is now and will continue to become literally a mental library wherein may be found all the thoughts released by mankind. The author is here laying the foundation for one of the most important hypotheses enumerated in the lesson self-confidence, a fact which the student should keep in mind as he approaches that lesson.
This is the lesson of organized knowledge. Most of the useful knowledge to which human race has become heir has become preserved and accurately recording, recorded in nature's Bible. By turning back the pages of this unalterable Bible, man has read the story of the ter terrific struggle through and out of which present civilization has grown. The pages of this Bible are made up of the physical elements of which this earth and other planets consist, and of the ether which fills all space. By turning back the pages written on stone and covered near the surface of the earth on which he lives, man has uncovered the bones, skeletons, footprints, and other unmistake, unmistake, unmistakable evidence of the history of animal life on this earth. Planet planted there for his enlightenment and the guidance by the hand of Mother Nature throughout unbelievable periods of time. The evidence is plain and unmistakable. The great stone pages of nature's Bible found on the earth and the endless pages of the Bible represented by the ether wherein all human thought has been recorded constitute an authentic source of communication between the Creator and man. This Bible has begun before man had reached the thinking age stage, indeed, before man had reached the amoeba stage of development. This Bible is above and beyond the power of man to alter Moreover, it tells its story not in the ancient dead languages or hieroglyphics of half-savage races, but in the universal language which all who have eyes may read, nature's Bible, from which we have derived all knowledge that is worth knowing, is one that no one, no man can, may alter or in any manner tamper with. The marvelous, this, the most marvelous discovery yet made by man is that of the recently discovered radio principle, which operates through the aid of ether, an important portion of nature's Bible. Imagine the ether picking up the ordinary vibration of sound, transforming that vibration from audio frequency into radio frequency, carrying it to a properly attuned receiving station, and there transforming it back into its original form of audio frequency, all in a flash of a second. It should be. It should surprise no one that such a force could gather up the vibration of thought and keep the vibration in motion forever. The established and known fact of instantaneous transmission of sound through the agency of ether by means of modern radio apparatus, removing the theory of transmission of thought vibration from mind to mind, from the possible to the probable. The mastermind. We come now to the next step in the description of the ways and means by which one may gather, classify, organize useful knowledge through harmonious alliance of two or more minds out of which grows a mastermind. The term mastermind is abstract, has no counterpart in the field of known facts, except to a small number of people who have made a careful study of the effect of one mind upon other minds. This author has searched in vain throughout all the textbooks and essays available on the subject of the human mind, but nowhere has been found even the slightest reference to the principle here described as the mastermind. The term first came to the attention of the author through an interview with Andrew Carnegie in the manner described in Lesson 2.
Chemistry of the Mastermind It is the author's belief that the mind is made up of the same universal fluid energy that which constitutes the ether which fills the universe. It is a fact as well known to the layman as to the man of scientific investigation that the some minds clash the moment they come in contact with each other while other minds show a natural affinity for each other. Between the two extremes of, na of natural antagonism and nat natural affinity growing out of the meeting or contacting of minds, there is a wide range of possibility for varying reactions of mind upon mind. Some minds are so naturally adapted to each other that love at first sight is the inevitable outcome of the contact. Who has not known of such an experience? In other, ca in other cases, minds are so antagonistic that violent mutual dislike shows itself at first meeting. These results occur without a word being spoken, without the slightest signs of any of the usual causes for love and hate acting as a stimulus. It is quite probable that the mind is made up of a fluid of, or substance of, or energy, call it what you will, similar to the ether. When two minds come close enough to each other to form a contact, the mixing of the units of this mind stuff sets up a chemical reaction and starts vibrations which affect the two individuals pleasantly or unpleasantly. The effect of the meeting of two minds is obviously to even the most casual observer. Every effect must have a cause. What could be more reasonable than to suspect that the cause of the change in mental attitude between two minds which have just come in close contact is one is none other than the disturbance of the electrons or units of each mind in the process of rearranging themselves in the new field created by the contact. We'll end there on page 53.